CCC, would you help me introduce Joel this morning as he shares our word? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think Gary is right. My Sunday school class must be in the, in the audience here today. Um, no, it's a privilege and an honor to be here to, to speak this morning and to uh, bring a message today. And I know we're... Uh, Thoughts are with Kevin and Kyle as well as they're going out to D.C. Hopefully they'll have a, a fun trip out there. I'm going to open with a word of prayer here real quick before we get rolling. So, Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for a time to gather, to worship you, to uh, open your word, to hear from you, Lord. May you use your spirit. We know that our words uh, are not where the power is, but your word, Lord. We do not live by bread alone, but we live by the words that proceed from your mouth. And uh, we thank you that you've recorded it, that we can read your words, and you sent your son who is called the word, that we may learn from you. And I pray that the, the lessons and the teachings that you've given to us, that they'll dwell deeply in our hearts, that we will uh, uh, have ears to hear and, and hearts that are open to your call. I just pray this morning you'll be here, guide this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start today telling you a little bit about my grandmother. Um, you, I probably haven't shared a whole lot about her with, with those of you here, but she was born in 1919. She uh, went to be with the Lord in October of 2015. And I've thought many times about what all she witnessed in her life spanning from 1919 to close to modern day. Um, in her youth, there was no electricity in her house. Uh, they had no plumbing. They had no heating. They had no air conditioning. Uh, they didn't even have insulation in their walls. And this is East Texas. She grew up uh, on a cotton farm. They had to work the farm. Uh, I, I go down there. She actually grew up in the same town that Chris Tomlin uh, is from. We go down there to fish a lot, and we have a lot of fun down there, but it's incredibly hot in the summers. And I always, when I hear this, I'm like, how could you live in East Texas with no insulation, no air conditioning? But nonetheless, that's the situation that she grew up in. They had kerosene lamps for light. Uh, they had one gas lamp that, that uh, my great-grandfather would put out in the middle of the, of the kitchen table for the kids to gather around and do their homework. Uh, and they didn't have electricity until she was a senior in high school, 1935. Um, there were no restaurants. Grocery stores were a new concept with limited inventory. It would be nothing like a grocery store that we would have today. Uh, people obviously did not have electric refrigerators, no washing machines. Uh, very few landline telephones at limited locations. Uh, you got to think of the, the entertainment was such that movies were hard to come by. They were black and white. They, would, they were silent at the beginning. Um, and so it was a different time. And there were, there were in, even, then you look at medical practices, there, was, there were no antibiotics. It was not like what we have today. She actually lost... Uh, several siblings to medical issues today that would have easily been addressed. She had one brother and one sister that they lost due to uh, causes with infection and whatnot, and then two others that were lost at birth. Uh, her Christmas gifts consisted of an apple, an orange, uh, some nuts, and maybe a little candy, and, and that's it. And, and, you know, I think of our Christmases now, and I, if I had a, a photo of what was under our tree, if our kids came out and they just got one apple, one orange, some nuts, they'd be like, are you kidding me? I waited all year for this. But anyway, that, that's what they had to look forward to then. And times were, were quite different. Then, of course, came the Great Depression. The nation struggled through economic turmoil and hardships that have really been unequaled since. And she and her seven other brothers and sisters worked that cotton farm in East Texas uh, to put food on, food on the table and stay afloat as best they could. After that came World War II. My grandmother actually joined the Marines. It was a new division started by the United States uh, in 41 with the Women uh, Reserve Unit of the U.S. Marine Corps. She became one of the first women Marines in our nation's history. Um, and 
that actually changed her life because in the Marines, she met my grandfather, who served in the Marines also. He served in Guadalcanal, uh, fought there in the Southern Pacific. And after the war, they settled down in north central Colorado. He, with his brothers, helped started a grocery store. They did, did really well. They, they served the community. They, I, I, even when I was a kid, the store was still doing really well. And my grandfather, who, of course, his name was on the sign outside, you'd see him checking, you know, out at the checkout line, you know, working with the meat guy and putting, you know, helping the stockers face things. And it was, it was, a, it was a period where these people, they worked hard uh, and they, they poured back into the community. And as they settled down back then to start a family, they lived through an era of great peace and prosperity after that war. Um, a time that was really incredible for our country, had great advancements, amazing discoveries, giant leaps for mankind. Really, our nation was at a great pinnacle, you know, in those years. Uh, and, and those were days and those were people that have led to us right here today, just like my grandmother and many of your grandparents and parents. Um, and so my grandmother went from kerosene lamps and horse and buggies outside of her house, to um, a man on the moon, to the internet, to computers, to she even lived with a, with a smartphone at near the end, and, and she even had, you know, a high definition, full color, you know, I don't know how many nits of output of light it had, but a very nice flat panel TV. She had come from and seen all these things unfold uh, in this nation right here, a nation that'll celebrate its 244th birthday here later this summer, a nation founded under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And we today still reap the benefits from those blessings that have been poured out upon this land. We enjoy great peace and great security. We live with great comfort and great ease. Our communication systems are unequaled. Our transportation systems are world-class. Our computing technology and AI capabilities are astounding. Our medical understanding grows and progresses each year. Our dollar is strong and gaining. Our GDP continues to rise. And virtually every home has a refrigerator. Every home has electricity. Virtually every home has clean running water. And they have air conditioning. And they have heating and cooling and these, these things. And the list goes on and on. Um, but this discussion today is not a typical State of the Union address. Uh, because there's something that we need to consider this morning that takes us in a little different direction. A spiritual direction. Um, and when we consider the history and the history of our country... Uh, we should do so with a perspective that seeks to align with God's perspective. And I know of no other place to gain that perspective than to look at his word. Because he's painted pictures and shown us nations like ours, like ours that were started with the Lord's help and they turned to him. And little by little, as they went up and down and up and down and grew and grew and different things happened, you get to see the stories that unfold. And, there, and therein, we get to see his perspective as written through his word, as how he viewed what was going on in this, these nations. If we rewind to 760 BC, for example, and this is a, a year I want for us to dwell on for a while here this morning, we find the nation of Israel has been in the land of Canaan for 640 years. They've had earthly kings on the throne for 280 years, so a little longer than the United States has been in existence. They've split by this point in time into two effective nations, if you remember, Judah in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and then the 10 remaining tribes of Israel in the north. We find in 760 BC that Uzziah is on the throne in the south, a good king, and we find Jeroboam II on the throne in the northern tribes. Not a great king. He had continued in the idolatrous practices of the previous kings, blending the worship of Yahweh with Baal and the Asherah, and you can read all about that if you want in the book of the kings. Uh, but God actually did something great 
during this period of time, even through an evil hand like Jeroboam II. It said God helped Jeroboam such that he reclaimed all kinds of borders and cities and towns and places that had previously been lost because God could just not bear seeing his people without a shepherd. So he came and he helped, even with wicked Jeroboam. And in the south, Uzziah sought the Lord and the Lord helped him marvelously, Chronicles says. Their borders also expanded. He went and reclaimed areas that had been lost to Edom and Moab and other areas in the south. Uh, This was under the hand of of, uh, Uzziah. And of course, the Lord was involved. So we have periods that were there were great times for Israel in the north, great times for Judah in the south. And if you look at a map here, let's throw the map up. You can sort of see the map on the left was the, the kingdom of David and Solomon. And the map on the right is the time period of seven, mid-8th century B.C., where you can see that these little red arrows are, are Uzziah's conquest to the south, and the black arrows are Jeroboam's second move to the north. And, and the, the borders now are back, resembling very similar to what it would have been like in the great days of David and Solomon. So these are days of plenty for these people, and they're, they're living well. Uh, and the Lord sent messengers during this time to his people, sent some prophets directly to the kings, and then he sent other prophets to the people, and he specifically says it that way. Prophets like Amos and Hosea and Micah and Isaiah sent to the people of either Israel or Judah to give them a message, to let them, let them see God's perspective of how it was going during this time of of expansion and peace and security. And Amos gives us a glimpse of what life was like back then. And this, we've talked about our nation now today. We know what it's like living here, but listen to a little bit about how Amos paints it. Amos 3.15 tells us that the people had multiple homes. They had enough income to have a winter home and a summer home, much like many of us today might enjoy having different, you know, maybe some of us have lake homes or different places we go. Uh, They had that then. Amos 5.11 tells us that they had houses built of well-hewn stone. So brick homes, nice homes that these people had back in the mid-8th century BC. Uh, They had great vineyards, Amos tells us. And Amos 6.4 paints a picture of the people that were able to recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who improvised to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. These people had the best body lotion. They had the best anti-aging creams. They had home studios. They had guitars. I mean, I'm being a little bit uh, (laughs) facetious here, but you can tell they really had it pretty darn well. They had gourmet food. They had the fattened calf. They had the lambs, the best ones from the flock. And so these people of this time period, uh, under Uzziah and Jeroboam II, they lived well. But the Lord sent a little different message and gave them a little different perspective. Let's put it that way that he wanted them to see. In God's eyes, he told the people through Hosea that the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord, in verse two of Hosea. And I I know some of you men have been studying Hosea, and there's a lot in it. And we're gonna try to mine out some of the details here this morning. But this picture of harlotry is one that we have to consider. Why harlotry? Well, in the Lord's perspective, It was like a husband-wife marriage relationship with the nation of Israel. He was the husband, and they should be the faithful bride. Uh, He would remain faithful to them, and they should have remained faithful to him, but they were not. And that's why he paints this picture uh, in Hosea. They attached themselves to other gods. They went after all kinds of idolatry and mixed it with their worship of Yahweh. They, they never really got rid of Yahweh entirely. They just said, it's okay to have Yahweh along with Baal and everything else. Uh, and you'd say, well, how did they, how did they go get to this position of turning from the Lord? 
Well, Hosea 13:6 says, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. That's a picture of a people that had a lot of great blessings given to them by the Lord. And you can read all about it in the history books and the narratives and 2 Kings and Chronicles. It makes it super clear that the person that really gave them these things was the Lord. And as they did this and as they gained all these things, they became proud. In other words, they looked within. They looked to themselves and they thought highly of themselves and their accomplishments. And in so doing, they forgot the Lord. But the Lord paints a very deep picture through, the, through Hosea and Amos. Uh, he gives us some other indications of how they got there. Consider Hosea 5.11, where he says, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. So they have a problem here in that they walked in the fears and the, and the ways of man rather than the fear of the Lord. We know from Proverbs that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way that leads to death. Uh, when you walk in the ways and the fear of man, a very humanistic view versus the fear of God, there's going to be a lot of problems that result uh, and many misunderstandings. Consider uh, one of the issues they struggled with. Let's look at Hosea 2.5. For she, Israel, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So here's another issue. They looked out. They saw their gains, their blessings, their successes, their homes, their jobs. They said, that's coming from us. It's, they didn't acknowledge that as coming from the Lord. They misunderstood and misdirected the sources of the source of their blessing. Uh, and this became a problem. Uh, yet our God says in, in 11.3 of Hosea, yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms but they did not know that it was I who healed them. This is a picture of a father teaching a young child to walk. Imagine, there's probably nothing sadder than to, as a father or a mother to raise your son or daughter, to teach them things and be there along their side when they stumble, pick them up, to, to bandage them when they, when they get bruised or cut, to help them, encourage them, and then to see them turn around and basically forsake, which means a word that means to turn your backside and just say, I've, I've have nothing to do with that. And to not even acknowledge that they were the ones that got me here, that helped me get this and, and gain this. So these people struggled with acknowledging the source and recognizing the source of their blessing. Now in 1945, the U.S. and the Allied forces uh, had gained victory in World War II. And for those that are history fans, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. The Lord gave the United States and the Allies an incredible victory. And, and there was a great time, as I mentioned earlier. I happened to visit a small museum in Eaton, Colorado, where my grandmother spent her last years. And she worked in a little museum there. Uh, and she would write little articles for the paper. And we went down to the museum one day, the family and I, and we were looking through it, and there was a lot about the war and about those individuals that had served in the war from Eaton, Colorado. And they had pictures and things, and, and, and I was digging through things, and I found papers from 1945 from the New York Times and made, you know, Washington Post, ma major publications in the United States. And I was a little surprised at, at what I found. It was, it was really, really cool. What I saw our nation do in 1945, I've got some, some excerpts from these papers that I have to just sort of show that we actually at that point in time were willing to say God was the one who gave us the victory. God was the one who gave us the blessing. Here's an ad from Herzberg's. It says, it actually has a direct quote from scripture. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
And so they're showing hands in prayer, giving thanks. Let's go to the next one. Here's one from Zales Jewelers. It says, we give thanks to God that our nation is no longer at war. The final victory is won with the fervent prayer that there will be lasting peace and understanding among all nations. Let's go to the next one. This is one from Brandeis, which I don't even know exactly what that was at the time in terms of a company, but they said, we thank thee, capital T, for leading us in the path of victory. We implore thee to guide our feet in the way of peace. They show a church off in the distance there, a church steeple. Let's go to the next one. Here's the same company. It says, peace, and then very simply, thy will be done. Let's go to another one here. Here's one. This is a neat one. They have a, a, a cross in the middle of the page, and then in very big letters, they say, let us give thanks. And then they have this little story here. A mother on a Midwest farm kneels in prayer beside the picture of a boy in uniform. Out on Wyoming prairies, a father watching the sunrise pauses to give thanks. In the den of a California war plant, a young girl at a lathe says a silent prayer. A weary soldier in a narrow foxhole hears the glad news. Words of a half-forgotten prayer come back to him. Today, as we all give thanks for victory, we determine to dedicate ourselves to the unfinished task ahead. Final victory will be ours. Thanks be to God. Burlington Trailways, 1945. This was a nation that was willing to acknowledge and recognize where the source of help came from in 1945. But in Amos and Hosea's day, they reached a point where they no longer could acknowledge God as being the provider. They could no longer seem seeing him as the sovereign provider of their blessings, their sustenance, their provision. And they could no longer even acknowledge him as the one that's sovereign over the weather. In Amos 4, 6, he says, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth, and in all your cities I did this, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain. And so they didn't see that. They didn't turn to the Lord. But the picture continues if you go even deeper. Hosea 4, 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Hosea 4, 11, Harlotry and wine and new wine take away the understanding. Hosea 5, 4 very simply states, They do not know the Lord. The people of that day, they, they lacked something, according to these passages. They lacked sound knowledge and understanding about the Lord. Their lifestyle of attaching themselves to other beliefs, other gods, and the pleasures of life had taken away their understanding. And in the end, it was the people that simply did not know the Lord. And so there was a problem. They rejected sound knowledge and sound truth, and thus they did not know the Lord. And you'd say, well, what does that actually look like? Well, the Lord tells us in Hosea 9, 7, the prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because of your hostility is so great. 8, 12, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law. They are regarded as a strange thing. Hosea 9:17, my God will cast them away because they have not listened to him. These people looked at the true prophets, the inspired people, and they said they're foolish. They're demented. Do you know where Amos was from? He was from a small town in southern Judah writing to people in the north of Israel. He was a sheep herder. He was not called from birth to be a prophet like, like others were. It wasn't until later in his life when God said, I want you to go and take a message to Israel. He would be like a guy coming today with a southern draw, smelling of sheep, uneducated, and you would come and speak to this nation? They'd say, He's a fool. We're not going to listen to Amos. And the inspired man is demented. 
And though I wrote to you thousands of precepts, and you know how much he wrote to these people? Three chapters of Joel, Amos, nine chapters, Hosea, 14 chapters, Isaiah, 66 chapters, Micah, seven chapters, yet they disregarded it, it says. It was like a strange thing to them. It was just strange. And yet one prophet goes to the Gentile, speaks one sentence, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And they respond in, in, in the ashes and dust on their heads and they repent and the nation there in Nineveh, they turn to the Lord. But these people, the Lord writes to them over and over, but they didn't, they didn't listen. And let's look at their assessment of their knowledge of God and their spiritual practices. They say in Hosea 8.2, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know thee. That's their, we know you, Lord. Micah 3.11, they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. They viewed themselves as knowing the Lord. They thought the Lord was in their midst and they believed that calamity would never come upon them. So Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Hosea 8.11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars for sinning, of sinning for him. Got to get the picture here. They multiplied their worship centers. They multiplied their places to sacrifice and do have spiritual activities. They thought that increased worship and sacrifice to God and to other gods would please Yahweh. Seems logical, but they had forgotten a key truth, that sacrifice and worship of Yahweh comes as second priority to obeying his commands. And does anybody remember the very first command? You shall have no other gods before me and that they had all kinds of other gods. Um, Proverbs 21.3 paints the picture of this, this prioritization. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. And Samuel, speaking to Saul in that great confrontation there, as Saul has just you know, acted as a priest himself, he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. These people placed worship and sacrifice above obedience to God's commands. Thus, the Lord responded to that. He told him his perspective. In Hosea 9.4, he says, their, their sacrifices will not please him, Hosea said. And Amos 5.21 is even more bold. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. So these folks had a problem, another problem, that their sacrifice and worship activities did not please the Lord. Now, there's, there's the things that this led to in terms of their daily lives and what they did. I want to look at one, and then we'll probably have to begin wrapping it up and hopefully turn it a little bit brighter because it's getting a little down in here right now. So these core problems led to issues and just how they walked and lived uh, in their lives. One that I've, I find fascinating, especially in today's day and age, is Hosea 12.7 says, A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress and Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. Picture here of people that are going about their business practices with slightly dishonest methodologies. And yet they look as it, this wouldn't be considered sin. I've gained these things and my wealth, and it, and it, it's not going to be called a sin. Let's not, let's not call it that much. It wouldn't be called that. I'm all okay. And then Amos 8.5, I love this little statement that he quotes to the people. This is the people speaking uh, that he quotes. They say, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and, and the Sabbath be over, that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? 
These folks had figured out ways to maximize their business returns via these little bit dishonest methods, ways to make packages look a little bit bigger, all the while the contents are a little bit smaller. They had figured out ways to open the stores on the holidays right after you're getting done with a big feast. Well, we got to start open. We need to open back up so we can make more money. And we need to get them back. Let's, don't worry about the new moon and the Sabbath and the celebration of giving thanks to anybody. Let's just, let's open our doors for business again. And that sort of rings a bell in my mind when I think of uh, what I see outside our doors. And yet all the while they say, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with any of this. There's no sin in any of this. I actually looked up a little stat. I was trying you know, to look at stats because everyone knows what it's like in the grocery store. We've seen our, our packaging you know, of contents. If you pay close attention, it slowly has dwindled. They, I read one that said just in a five-year period from 2012 to 2017, over 2,500 products had, had, had shrunk drastically in their contents. All the while, the package would still appear to be a very similar size. Um, now, we have to start turning a corner here because if we spin them up, you know, all the time on all these down and out things, we could, and we could, we would find issues, go to the next slide here, Tracy, we would find all these other problems. And I'm just not, I just didn't have the heart here to have us all go through all these, but maybe at another time, or maybe you can go through them. But they, these, another problem that's painted in Hosea 6 is, they were not loyal. They were not people of their word. Uh, in another problem, they were not faithful in their marriages, according to 4.13 of Hosea. Another problem that crept in that was pretty prevalent, you can read about it in a lot of verses in Hosea and Micah, they loved evil and violence. They tended to gravitate towards shows that would be more about murder and more about violence and bloodshed rather than kindness and truth and peace. And then another problem, when they saw their need, they turned to man, it says. They turned to government in Hosea 5.13 and 10.13. Problem they had, they didn't turn to God even when selecting their leaders. It says they set up kings, but not by me. They set up rulers, but they didn't consult the Lord. Another problem, they were steeped in idolatry, as I've mentioned. They blended idol worship with Yahweh worship. That one you could just go on with lots of verses uh, to support. And they oppressed the poor. The, thus, the judgment was certain from the Lord. Amos 7.17, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Hosea 1.9, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. It can't get much sadder than that picture. When the Lord says, you are not my people, even though he had said, I'd, I'd been with you, with you when you were a little child, and I'd taught you how to walk, and then he says, you're not my people, and I'm not your God. Uh, it, was a, it was a sad situation. And you'd say, wow, Joel, this is, about as sad and as discouraging of a message as I've ever heard, and I'm ready to get out of here, and it's, and it's hopeless. And my kids said to me just two nights ago, they said, Dad, don't make it too negative, because this is just entirely too negative. Uh, but this is the point in the story that in my, I get sort of revved up, because you can either look at this and say, there's, there's no hope, or there is hope. Um, on August 7th, 1942, the Marines landed on the beaches of Guadalcanal, and my granddad was one of them. Uh, what ensued was a critical strategic battle between the United States and the Japanese forces for a small island in the Southern Pacific, part of the Solomon Islands. It was a battle that later on the, the Japanese folks said it was literally the turning point for their war against the United States. Um, my granddad was there when they made their amphibious uh, landing. But even prior to that, when he looked up and he was on his boat, he said he saw a kamikaze coming straight towards their, their ship. And he thought, you know, 
doesn't look good. Looks like we're going down. And the thing was, it was, it was barreling in on them. And at the last second, they were able to hit it with some anti-aircraft, and it, and it, and it diverged and nailed the, the sea. And then they made the amphibious landing, and they stormed those beaches there in Guadalcanal. And they took over the island, and they fought the Japanese, and they had to fight through tunnels and trenches and different things. Uh, and you'd think, well, you know, he had to survive all these things, and it could have gone, gone south at any moment. And then right when you think, well, they, they did it, they, 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 they actually did really, really pretty well. And they had a great victory in, in, a, in most senses. Unfortunately, they were left for six weeks without provision. The reinforcements, Douglas MacArthur didn't get there in time. And men began to die just of malaria and disease. And there were still some Japanese that would come in and they, were, they, they never gave up until the end. They would just fight until, until the death. But they got to where they had to, my, I'm, I talked to my mom about it just to re remember the stories. They, they had to ration out the food to where they would have seven peas, my grandfather said, for just one meal, they'd get seven peas to eat. Um, and that's what they had to live on for weeks and weeks. People were even just dying at this point. And it seemed like, man, the, we've had all these things, and it could have died there and could have died here, and it went south, and hope seemed lost. And then, praise be to the Lord that MacArthur did show up, and he, he viewed himself as, I'm the Savior. Although my grandfather was always a little, little bummed that it took him six weeks to get there. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, the, right when it was hopeless, the Lord gave hope. Another story I'll throw out here, just I, I have to because it's February, and a few weeks ago I spent some time, you can go to the next slide. <laughs> I just, I had to take the opportunity here when, when, it, when all hope seems to be lost, and you're in the third, or third quarter of the Super Bowl, and then going into the fourth quarter, and it's looking like after all these years, we're not going to get it done. And then we all know the story. I remember I was up with my kids and my brother, and my, my Brandon was like, man, maybe we should head, should head home. And then we were all getting super bummed, and my brother just said, my brother is an eternal optimist, by the way. He's, he's constantly optim, optim, optimistic. And he just said, this is when legends are formed. This is when legends are made. And... Uh, and you know, to a certain extent, that's, that's true. When times are dark, when all hope seems lost, that's when a Savior can shine. That's when God can shine at his brightest. And that's why I get excited, is because somehow, some way, God can turn a terrible mess into an amazing, hope-filled story. Because every Old Testament prophet, mark my words, every Old Testament prophet sent to this nation of Israel to tell them about judgment coming. Not one of them did so without also telling them about the restoration of Israel, about a hope for the nation of Israel, and a hope for those people, because that's the nature of our God. He does not leave people without hope, and he does not leave people without a light. And even when the nation as a whole, the die was cast and judgment was certain, why was he still sending messages to the people? Because God cares about the individuals of a nation. And he cares about these people even in our country today. For 8th century Israel, he gave them some instructions. And here's what he said. 12.6 of Hosea, Return to your God. Observe kindness and justice. And wait for your God continually. Amos 5.14, seek good and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord, the God of armies, the God of hosts, may he be with you. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. And then in verse 3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. That's the picture 
that he gives to them, this people. After everything they've done, God promises to come to them as they seek him. And then it gets even better than that because he paints a picture of a future for these people that's unbelievable. It's, it's amazing to read in Hosea 2, 19. He tells us great, a great message. He says, and I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord, unlike these other times when you didn't know me. And 23, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say to me, thou art my God. And in Hosea 1.10, it says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in that place where it is said, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. If that's not an incredible hope, if you, if you were living in that day, I would hope that you would have ears and you would hear what Hosea and Amos were trying to get across, that there is a hope that's in God, that's in Christ, that's in our Lord. My friends, when the foundation is cracked and the foundation is crumbling and judgment is drawing near, the Lord still calls. He roars forth to individuals that are willing to hear his voice. And he lays forth a hope for an eternal future, an eternal hope of glory. Shortly before her death, I I talked to my grandmother And she said, Joel, she said, the culture has changed. We didn't have the the immorality that I see on my TV. Not saying they didn't have sin, but it wasn't as prolific and advertised as we do today. She said, the violence and the evil wasn't promoted like this. Things were different, she said. My grandma saw saw a lot of changes for good. A lot of great advancements for mankind. But she also saw a great shift in the foundations of this country. Brothers and sisters, the bedrock of a nation lies in the culture that is formed by the people and families that comprise it. Today we live in a culture wherein man and his pride thinks he's sovereign over gender. Man thinks he's sovereign and controls the weather. Man thinks he's sovereign and can get us through anything. Science, technology will solve it all. That can, we, can, we can heal. We can figure out how to do whatever we want. It's wrong. The ways of man will lead to ruin if we place our hope in man. If we place our hope in governments and politics, will that be the answer? No. No, it won't. God's history book has taken time to show us that when the people of a nation turn their backs on him in the light of his word, the outcome is certain ruin for that people. But it also shows that God in his grace and mercy cares about the hearts and the minds of the people, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. He cares about individuals in this great nation. And as he told Abraham, I'm willing to spare a city or a nation, even if I just find 50, 20, 30, 20, 10, if I just find some in that nation, I'm willing to spare my wrath and my judgment. May we be the people of the Lord in this country. May we be willing to go out and tell the good news through, of Jesus Christ that may impact lives. He tells tells us we are to be change agents like salt. We are to be preserving agents. We are to be those that shine a beacon of light, of truth to those around us. What can we do today? Humble ourselves in his sight. 
Make him the center of our households. Teach our sons and our daughters when we rise up and when we lie down. Acknowledge him as the giver of all of our blessings, be it big or small, whether it's a Super Bowl win or something huge like a victory in Guadalcanal. We can say the Lord gave us something, a little bit of joy here, a little bit of joy there, a great medical discovery here. I'm certainly glad that angioplasty works and stents are able to help people in their hearts because God gives us those things and he gives people of wisdom and skill to us to help us with these things. But where does it come from? We can acknowledge that these blessings come from none other than God himself. We can turn to the Lord when we're in need and especially when we're selecting leaders, call out to the Lord, ask him for help. Don't rely on your own judgment. Do our work and our business with honesty and justice and integrity. Be people of our word, loyal to our covenants and our commitments. Help the needy and the poor. Worship God in spirit and in truth, understanding the priority of obedience to him. Turning away from the trappings and the idols of this world and seeking to know him more every day because he will come to us like the spring rain. We draw near to him, the New Testament says, he will draw near to us. We can be a light on a hill even though it's a dark, dark world outside. I like what Paul said in Acts as he stood before those in Athens a famous time, a famous place, a famous passage, and you'll hear in it similar themes. Do you trust in the ways of God, the one true God, or do you look to the works of man? In Acts 17, Paul said, God made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? So that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist and have our being. And 29, being then the offspring of God, get this, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, that we do not want to go that road. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the call that we've been given. That's the witness that he says we turn to. That will be the reality of judgment that will come through the one man, Jesus Christ. My grandma went to be with the Lord October of 2015. And as I said, I believe she lived through some of our nation's highest points. And in the weeks preceding her death, we sat there with her. We drove out to Colorado to see her. And my, she had, it was sort of like a little bit like the story in Genesis where Jacob got to see each of his kids. Special time, she took each of the grandkids on her knee. It was a neat time, but she said to each one of them, she would look him in the eye. And she would say, and I'll see you on the other side. And I will see you on the other side. And I will see you on the other side. Well, she loved and she served this great nation. Her life was created and held in the hands of God Almighty. And she sought him. She knew what the priorities were. And I know I'll see her again because of the hope that lies within me. A hope that's not going to disappoint when we get to the other side. I'm not a prophet. This is an Old Testament Israel. But I hope you see that there are a lot of similarities. And I hope you see that this is a dire time that calls for the people of God to stand up, take action, to respond to his word, and to take the good news, 
the good news of the gospel while there's still time to this nation. So, Lord, we just uh, bow before you. We thank you for being an awesome God. Lord, I don't know the future, but you do. I don't know what lies around the corner for this nation of the United States of America. But I do know the end of your book. And I know you tell us that you will be our light. We won't need the sun or the moon any longer. That we will look to you and we will call you the Lord, our righteousness, because we'll call, see how right you are. Because we've lived in a world where man tries to do it time and time again. And we see how desperately astray we go. And that gives us a view of you, Lord, how right you are. You are the Lord, our righteousness. And you will come again. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they want to or not, that you are the Lord. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are worthy of all glory and power and honor because you have done these great things. Lord, we know your heart. You've made it exceedingly clear. For those of us that pour through and sift through your word, Lord, we see a heart of compassion, a heart of grace, a heart of mercy. If you weren't, we wouldn't even be here. You would have dealt with this earth long ago. The very fact that we're even sitting here today and can speak and talk to one another is a, is a sign of your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we pray that you'll help us to be the people that you call us to be. That we will go forth in this dark hour and we will look upon it with, with a light. We will go forth with hope. We will go forth with a confident expectation knowing that while it seems dark outside, light is on the horizon. For you will come to us like the spring rain. And we want to draw near to you. I pray for these people here, Lord. I love this country. I love this nation. I love these people. I love this church. I love my family, my kids that are, that are here this morning, and my in-laws that are here. May we respond to the light you've given to us. I just pray that your spirit will work in us, that we will do what you call us to do, and we will not lose hope. We will cry out to you. You are God, and you will say, you are my people. We pray and ask these things now. In the name that has all authority, the name that has earned all authority on heaven and on earth. The name of Jesus, of Nazareth, Yeshua, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who purchased us back and redeemed us for you, that we may live rightly before you and enter boldly into your presence. We pray in his name. Amen.